this week on the Backtable Podcast. So, I mean, the greatest thing about focused ultrasound is it is such a dynamic technology, right? So if you're using high intensity and you're, you're destroying tissue, you can turn that intensity all the way down and you can do things like transiently open the blood-brain barrier, but it's even cooler than that because with this mechanical wave stimulation, you can change how neurons are firing. You can actually do neuromodulation with low-intensity focused ultrasound. And that's really being looked at for neuropsychiatric illnesses like depression, addiction, things like that. I think it's a really promising technology and it also begs the question like, does it need to be done in an MRI scanner? Or can this be like a wearable thing that the patient can have based on biofeedback, some constant stimulation of parameters and things like that? Hello everyone, welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and otherwise minimally invasive. This is your host, Jacob Fleming, and today we're going even further in our podcast. We're not just minimally invasive, but non-invasive today. And so I'm happy to have with us very special guest, Bavia Shah, neuroradiologist from UT Southwestern. He's also one of my attendings, so we're going to try to keep the brown nosing to a minimum. No promises. But Dr. Shah, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming to share your time and expertise on HIFU. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So am I. I think this is such a cool topic. And let's, let's dive right in. So what the heck is HIFU, first of all? Right. So HIFU, you know, every, everybody calls it HIFU. It's a high-intensity focused ultrasound. But, you know, it's important to note it's called focused ultrasound. And uh-huh. high-intensity and low-intensity, there's different applications depending on the duty cycle that you're using and things like that. So focused ultrasound, high-intensity applications, and low-intensity applications. It's the ability to focus ultrasound waves onto a single point and use it to change how neurons behave if you're using low intensity and then ablate tissue or destroy tissue if you're using high intensity with applications in the brain and outside of the brain, obviously. Very cool. So obviously we immediately contrast this to the ultrasound that the the rest of us uh, radiologists or or other uh, interventional proceduralists are, are used to for diagnostic purposes. This is actually using the same underlying physics, but for therapeutic purposes. Yeah. Therapeutic ultrasound is a great way to refer to it too. Excellent. And so let's start. And before we dive a little bit further, your kind of your training and and your pathway and your career so far has really been wrapped up in this. And I always like to hear a little bit of the background from our guests first. So tell us a little bit about your life and, and your training and how everything has kind of led up to where you are with, with this right now. Sure. So when I was in Boston as a radiology resident, I was working on applications for nerve regeneration in a lab at the Brain and Cognitive Sciences at MIT. Now, how are we going to deliver these nanoparticles to the brain was always kind of a question. Open surgery means you have to cut through tissue to get to your target. And then, you know, vascular approaches aren't really going to work for what we're trying to do here. And focus ultrasound really stuck out to me as I was reviewing the literature and things. And then I got accepted to the T32 fellowship at Stanford and was exposed to focus ultrasound. And I think it really invigorated my passion for what we could do with this stuff, especially as radiologists, people who are trained to use images to treat patients. I think this offers us an ability to use advanced imaging to target discrete tissues in the brain, either to ablate them thermally or with low intensity focus ultrasound to deliver drugs or even do things such as liquid biopsies, which we'll talk about. Yeah, that's, that's really amazing. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with the T32 fellowship? Yeah, so the T32 fellowship is kind of a two-year training program. 
16 months of that is really dedicated to research and some, you know, any, any subject you really want to take, undertake. There's, you know, there's so many options when you go into one of these T32 trading programs, especially at a place that's as, as rich of, with resources as Stanford. The focused ultrasound, there was just something about it that was more than just diagnostic applications. And I've always kind of had an interventional bent to things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it just seemed to make sense for me. Excellent. And so uh, from there, building on your work with the T32 Fellowship, how did you get started? Um, first of all, where, where did you end up uh, doing your uh, neuroradiology training? And then how did you get started in your career and then work toward this? So at Stanford, they were doing some of the original clinical trials to look at essential tremor. So this idea that you could target a specific thalamic nucleus in the brain to treat essential tremor or tremor-dominant Parkinson's disease was really kind of brought forth at the University of Virginia by Jeff Elias, who's a neurosurgeon there. And so they were doing kind of a clinical trial, multi-center, and Stanford was one of the sites. And I remember while I was training there, one of the questions that kept coming up is, we can't see this target on high-resolution imaging. We can't see it on the best imaging that we have. So we, we were resorting to indirect or landmark-based approaches. You know, as, you're, as a fellow and people are telling you, hey, this is a problem, go find a solution. You're constantly, it's always running in the back of your head, like, how am I going to find this target? And so I started uh, working in tractography and, and things like that. Awesome. So yeah, let's, uh, let's just dive in and talk a little bit more about the specifics of it. You're obviously at UT Southwestern right now. And so you, you came in as you started uh, your, your early career practicing as a neuroradiologist. Obviously, this was a particular interest to you. And so I take it you knew that this is something that was going to be a major focus for you in your career, right? Yeah, absolutely. Early on, uh, when I went with Joe Malachin and Neil Rofsky, they were really looking for somebody from our end to take us by the horns and really lead the program uh-huh. and make it what, what we could do it. And so that was really my whole reason for coming here or being hired to come here. You know, previously I was working as a neuroradiologist at the VA. I just started a medical device company and I was spending three days a week reading spine MRI and brain, like routine brain MRIs. Sure. And working on my company. And as soon as that company kind of took off on its own and didn't really need me so much for the chief scientific officer part of it, um, sure. I spent all this year training, all this time training, and uh, always had passion for focused ultrasound. And to hear that Joe and Neil were looking for somebody to lead the program and just kind of just fit, you know? Yeah, right right place at the right time. Exactly. That's great. And so, yeah, you had, the, you had that itch. You knew you needed to be doing something else. When I was a first year resident, I think things were kind of starting to get off the ground. And so it's been kind of cool to see this unfold and see the the volume go up and, and the success. Tell us about the journey so far getting this program started. Yeah, so it's definitely been a journey. You know, I think as most things, when we talk about medical technology, cost is a pretty significant burden. And so when this technology was, you know, getting FDA approved and other sites were picking it up, and we wanted to purchase it, there's always limitations on how much money a hospital system can put into equipment. We got really lucky and Bill Dower and Mark Diamond really, you know, spoke to me a little bit about focus ultrasound technology. So I was working with Mark on some preclinical experiments, you know, looking at Alzheimer's disease with focused ultrasound. And he introduced me to Bill. And Bill's really been really instrumental in getting this technology here. He's the director of the O'Donnell Brain Institute at UT Southwestern. And he he really liked the idea. He supported the idea. Our movement disorder section also really supported the idea. And so we got the money from a donor to get the equipment. 
And then, you know, once we got the equipment, we just started rolling. Fantastic. And so uh, I want to jump off from that. So this is a predominantly IR podcast. There's a bunch of equipment nerds listening. So let's talk equipment. What, what all is involved in, the, in this operation? So you either need a 1.5 Tesla or a 3 Tesla MRI scanner. You need a 1024 array transcranial ultrasound transducer. That transducer has its own components, a water circulating tank, equipment that comes with the kit, and then obviously a stereotactic head frame that you have to place on the patient before you do the procedure to keep their head still. And, you know, those are the big components. Really big components is really that transducer. And right now there's only one company who makes a FDA approved transducer to do HIFU. And the other is the 1.5T or 3T MRI. Those are the big pieces. Gotcha. So this ultrasound unit is totally different than typical one we just got in the department using to do the DVT studies or for uh, guided procedures. Yeah, this doesn't even look like an ultrasound unit. It looks like, you know, those um, old school perm devices where where you go and put that thing on your head. It looks exactly like that. It's a helmet, right? And so when you open that helmet up, you can find that there are 1,024 phased array ultrasound transducers. And that's what really makes it possible is the phased array technology. So people have, I mean, focused ultrasound in the brain isn't new, right? The Fry Brothers and uh, Springfield, Illinois. The problem was that we didn't really have the technology to image what we were doing. And so they'd have to do a craniotomy and then use focused ultrasound. In fact, Lars Escal even built a frame for it. He built a focused ultrasound stereotactic frame. I mean, it's, so it's been there. But I think with the advent of technology imaging phased array ultrasound transducers, it really changed the game allowed us to deliver ultrasound across an intact skull. That's, that's really incredible. And I, I love hearing that history that it w- was an open surgical technique. And now, like I said, I mean, yeah. would you you'd consider this basically a non-invasive technology? Is that how you would describe this? A lot of people say it's non-invasive. I actually think it is pretty invasive, right? Because you are targeting deep structures of the brain. I think another way of maybe saying it is incisionless, right? Because you're not making any holes or, or making any incisions. And I think that's more appropriate because sure, deep, deep thalamic nuclei is pretty invasive in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Uh, and trying to uh, mitigate the, the risk that come obviously with the craniotomy and other things like yeah. this is really amazing that we've gotten to the point now with the technology doing this incisionless. So very, very cool. So talk about you mentioned a couple different clinical scenarios, essential tremor, Alzheimer's. Uh, are those the primary clinical issues we're seeing? And what kind of clinical issues are you seeing in the clinic and, and treating these patients? Sure. So, you know, the focused ultrasound technology or high intensity focused ultrasound is currently FDA approved for a couple of things. Essential tremor, tremor dominant Parkinson's disease. So those are patients who have a very specific time of Parkinson's disease in which their main symptom is is tremor. Number three is also other motor symptoms in the setting of Parkinson's disease, such as bradykinesia, rigidity, dyskinesias, things like that. And so depending on what you're doing, the target is different. So for uh, essential tremor and tremor-dominant Parkinson's disease, the target has historically been considered the uh, ventral intermediate nucleus of the thalamus, or some people for the tremor-dominant Parkinson's disease would consider even the ventral oralis posterior nucleus. But for the uh, for Parkinson's disease, the target in the United States that's FDA approved is the globus pallidus internus, which is in contrast to some of the clinical trials that are coming out of Europe in which they're targeting the subthalamic nucleus. 
And so just, I think last week, there was a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at HIFU pallidotomy in the United States, kind of multi-site clinical evaluation of how well it worked. Similarly, in the Journal of Neurology, maybe two or three weeks ago, the Europeans published their experience with the STN. And I think, you know, without really getting into the nitty gritty, it's, it's pretty obvious that the reductions in these motor symptoms are not as great as people had in initially anticipated, although there is some effect and there is still a pretty significant adverse effect profile, you know. Interesting. I understand that part of the reason that speaking to one of our colleagues, Fabricio Feltrin, shout out to Fabricio, he's a great yeah. fellow, research fellow, and now attending at UT Southwestern. He's been uh, very involved with this as well. He says part of the reason that your patients have such good Im improvement in a lot of cases it has to do with the workup and, and using the MR tractography. Can you talk about that whole part of the pre-procedure aspect? Yeah, absolutely. But a shout out to Fabrizio as well. He's probably one of the best fellows I've ever worked with and he's a fantastic attending. You know, there's so many different ways to target the part of the brain that you're talking about. And so let's talk about essential tremor because I think that's going to be the most straightforward way of thinking about this. So the ventral intermediate nucleus is the, is the target. But people can't see it on any kind of high-resolution imaging, so they're relying on landmark or indirect-based methods, right? So they identify key structures in the brain, like the anterior commissure and posterior commissure, and they make measurements from this and say, approximately, this is where they think the target is. The great thing about focused ultrasound is before you treat, meaning that before you ablate a part of the brain, you can use low-intensity focused ultrasound to stimulate what you think is the target. And then if you go and examine the patient in real time, you can see that their tremor is getting better. And you can also ask if they're having any side effects. So if their tremor is getting better and they're not having side effects, it means you're in a great spot. But you may not be in a great spot. And you might, patient's tremor might not have gotten better or they might have some side effects, in which case you're going to have to move and search around looking for the target. And so to get around this, we use this method called four-track tractography that I developed here. And so Basically, we started in cadavers, maybe when I was recruited, so four or five years ago, that we obtained through the World Body Program. These people had passed, but had donated their bodies to science. And we were able to acquire the, them right after they'd passed. So no fixation, no formaldehyde, nothing like that. We would get them on the scanner in the middle of the night, and we'd run really high resolution, 32, 64, 128 direction DTI, advanced structural imaging, such as this fast gray acquisition T1 inversion recovery. And then we would process these different tractography things. Meanwhile, we would take the patient's brain and we would put it in a 3D printed slicing guide. The slicing guide, the whole purpose of it was to hold the brain like it is held anatomically, but in a specific plane known as the anterior commissure or posterior commissure plane. We would then slice through the brain at two millimeter sections from the front to the back and then register these images off the MRI back to the path using block face photography. And then we would dissect down in micron sections and identify white matter tracts that were entering and leaving the thalamus. And so we were looking at a couple of things. Number one, anytime you say DTI out loud, someone says distortion, huge gradients, lots of distortion. But we're in the central part of the brain, so we wanted to make sure that that wasn't going to be the case. Number two, people talk about biomarkers all the time. And, you know, imaging biomarkers are one of those things where just because you can identify it, is it really there? And we wanted to show that, yeah, you know, it's really an anatomic structure that you can identify and it's pretty high likelihood what you're looking at. And the third thing we wanted to do, the reason we ran so many DTI scans 
was because we wanted to use something that's clinically relevant. You know, like in radiology, sometimes we get really excited that we can make pretty pictures. And then we have like, you know, 256 directions, but no clinical protocol can support that. And so we wanted to drive it down to as little as possible, right? So we were using 32 directions. And, you know, this, this, at the same time this was going on, people in functional neurosurgery, neurosurgeons were reporting that the improvement in the patient's tremor, in essential tremor, didn't really matter how close you were to the VIM. What really mattered was how close you were to the white matter tract, the dentato-rubrothalamic tract. But what track they were looking at and what tracks you should prospectively target, nobody really seemed to understand that. And so that's what we did, right? We, we came back and said, look, there are two components to the DRTT, a decussating and a non-decussating component. And, you know, from histology and pathology and all the anatomic studies that have ever been done, we know that the decussating DRTT goes into two nuclei, the VOP and the VIM, and the non-decussating only goes into the VIM. So if you're targeting at the posterior margin of those two, you're pretty much hitting VIM. And so we did a lot of this preliminary work in uh, cadavers, really proved that what we were looking at was what we could see. And then it became translating into FDA-approved software for treatment, right? And so we started using BrainLab and uh, processing this. And then we, ever since then, we've been using this approach for tract tractography to identify the targets, the decussating and the non-decussating DRTT, and also identify tracts that we want to avoid, right? The medial lumniscus, which is primary sensory for the for the whole body, and also the corticospinal tract, which is your primary motor tract. You don't want to you want to stay away from those. And so that's kind of how we've developed our protocols. A lot of people tell me we've done tractography and it doesn't work, and I, I and I think that that is a fair criticism because it depends on who's doing your tractography, right? So, you know, one of my friends, he's a really he's a neurosurgeon, and he's like, you know, I we gave the radiologist the the protocol and they did it and they made the tracts and. You know, I, I would say to that, that's probably not going to work, even without seeing the tracts. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. if you're the treatment physician, you should be making your tracts and looking at them yourself right. and making sure they make sense, right? It's definitely one of the advantages of, of you being the diagnostician and, and the treater. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's important. And the other thing is, I think that protocols vary greatly, right? And having a really good understanding of the anatomy is really essential. That being said, we've kind of expanded, you know, we've, we've shared our approach with UCSF, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, University of Colorado and Duke. And they seem to be getting the same tracks that we're getting and the same responses. So I think it's, I think it's working on. Very cool. So just talk us through a patient gets referred to you, say a patient with a central tremor, where are they usually in their treatment journey when they come to you? And then how does it go from you? What's your workup? And then to getting them onto the procedure table and uh, working on actually taking care of, of their issue? Yeah. So that's a great question. So we get people kind of referred all stages in their journey. Essential tremor is one of those things where it is actually the most common movement disorder. People just say, you know, my dad used to shake or my grandpa shook and they never really did anything about it. And so I think for a long time, people have kind of overlooked that this is actually a medical problem that they could do something about. A lot of these patients are managed by their primary care doctors. But when things get bad enough and none of the meds that they know seem to be working, they do get sent to movement disorders for a further evaluation. And so when we're seeing them, they're usually at the point either where a primary care doctor has heard about us or the patient has heard about us and has called us directly and they haven't yet seen a movement disorder neurologist. Or they're being seen by a movement disorder neurologist who wants us to evaluate them. So if it's the former where they're being evaluated by a primary care doctor, we send them through our movement disorder group because, you know, we want to all be kind of on the same page about what we're, what we're dealing with. But if it's been a patient who's referred to us by movement disorder neurology, they'll come see us in clinic and we'll 
evaluate them. We'll do an exam. We'll look at all the imaging with them and try to understand what kind of tremor they have and if it is essential tremor or tremor dominant Parkinson's disease. That's clinic visit. And then after that clinic visit, we'll kind of go over the risks and benefits of the procedure, the standard approach. And then if the patient's interested in focused ultrasound, on the same day of that clinic visit, we'll have them get a head CT. The head CT is done to calculate this thing called skull density ratio. And we describe it to patients as, you know, is your skull too thick for the ultrasound images to penetrate the skull? But really, it's, it's, it's a ratio, cancellous bone, enhanceful units versus cortical bone, right? And so anything less than 0.40, we usually don't treat. And anything greater than 0.40, we treat. So if they're greater than 0.4 skull density ratio, we then have an MRI that's ordered. And it's a MRI that has our DTI protocol built into it, as well as their advanced structural imaging. So the patient will get that, and then I will process that and then burn that plan into the console. And so when the patient shows up for the treatment on a Monday, everything's already there and we're using it for real interoperative guidance, real-time interoperative guidance and things like that. Awesome. And so uh, like you mentioned earlier, so you have them in the magnet and they're going to have the stereotactic frame and then the focused ultrasound perm machine. Yeah. Is this procedure done under sedation or anesthesia or the patient's awake? The patient's awake through all of this and we don't give any sedation or anesthesia because it can affect their tremor. So if you were to give them something like Fursed, you could see that their tremor would be completely gone and that would eliminate our ability to do biofeedback. So when we do these procedures, we just give them oral Tylenol. We give them 25 of fentanyl. Uh, we give them four of dexamethasone to prevent any swelling that may happen, you know, downstream after the procedure. And we give them Zofran because some patients complain they get nauseous during the procedure. And that's all the medications that we give. Patients are awake and alert, interacting with us, and we're making sure their tremor's getting better and they're, they're not having any side effects before we ablate. Very cool. And so you have that continuous kind of feedback with the patient. About how long does the procedure go on for? So the actual ultrasound portion of the procedure is probably 30 to 45 minutes, but you know, there's other steps. So when the patients come in on a Monday morning for the procedure, they've been off of their tremor medications for a week. If they're taking anticoagulation, any kind of anticoagulation, we also you know, request that they stop that seven days prior. We speak to their cardiologists and others, make sure that's okay. It's not really a hard no, but it's better because it prevents the likelihood of a hemorrhage, you know. So we basically have them off their tremor medications. And so when they come in, their tremor is much worse than it was when you saw them in clinic. A lot of patients will tell you in clinic, oh, my meds don't work. They don't do anything. And then when you see them that morning, it's completely different. They're like, you see the difference. You see the difference. You see the difference. And we want a really good baseline, right? Because we're trying to see how they're doing after that. So we have a movement disorder neurologist who's with us during this part. So we're both doing a neuro exam, two attending physicians doing their independent neuro exam and then concurring on what they're finding, right? Um, this is really important when you talk about the side effects and things like that. But we're, we do that. And so we, have, we do a full neuro exam immediately before the procedure. We give them the patient the meds. We bring them back to the focused ultrasound suite. And then we put the stereotactic frame on them, which isn't super challenging. The, the, the biggest thing is you want to keep the frame as low as possible so your ultrasound helmet can give you the maximal ultrasound coverage of the skull, right? So we do that, and then we get the patient on the table. An interesting thing is this cold water bag that kind of sits on the patient's head. And the reason it does that is because the skull wants to absorb as much ultrasound energy as it can. 
And so we want to keep their skull cool and prevent any burns. Okay. So this, this water bag is just circulating ice water on their scalp throughout the entire procedure. Gotcha. Just from that, before I forget, I think this is important to talk about. It's that this technique, like you described earlier, incisionless, probably a good way to think about it. And definitely not without risk. And like you've described, the whole point is using the ultrasound waves, which we normally think of as innocuous, to ablate tissue. So what are the worst theoretical sort of things that can happen? And then you, you kind of described about the burns and things like that and potential for hemorrhage. Is that something that's been uh, reported and obviously using an abundance of caution? Uh, but uh, what what are the kind of things that may actually show up as a result of of the focus ultrasound? Yeah. So, you know, the burns, interestingly enough, they haven't really been reported in the literature, but early on, people just know that bone is such a great conductor of ultrasound energy, right? And so that's kind of always been a concern. But I would say nothing in the commercial treatments that's ever been reported, to my knowledge. And then the other thing that I would say, when you're talking about delivering energy into the brain to a specific target, like most things, it's really important to know your boundaries, right? And so your more posterior boundary is the medial lemniscus. And the medial lemniscus is important for sensation. And so if you get edema there, or if the focus ultrasound beam, even the low intensity focus ultrasound beam grazes the medial lemniscus, the patient's going to tell you they're having numbness and tingling around the mouth or in the fingertips. It's very, I mean, it's very common, right? Same kind of issue with the corticospinal tract. If the ultrasound beam hits the corticospinal tract, the patient's obviously going to have some kind of motor weakness, depending on where you've, where, where you've hit it. And so I think those are the two biggest side effects. I haven't heard so much about thalamic hemorrhages or things like that in recent years, you know, maybe initially. Same thing with the scalp burns. I haven't really seen of that or heard that. And we've treated people with low skull density ratios. We're not, we're not seeing that with them either. I think, you know, the biggest thing is knowing where your focused ultrasound lesion is when you're doing the treatment and making sure you're in, in, a, in a safe space. My understanding after talking to people that were involved in those trials was they wanted to be sure that they were going to hit the part of the brain causing the tremor. And so they would keep going posterior until they hit medial lemniscus and they had some sensory side effects at low intensity ultrasound, right? And so they were just validating that their target, because they knew that those transient side effects would go away because they were at a lower intensity, but they just wanted to make sure that they were close to actually hitting the target that they were considering. The other thing is that when they did the initial trial, the approach and the technique had changed. So back then, they were going straight at the indirect coordinate, so right at the anterior commissure, posterior commissure plane, at ACPC. And during that trial, a lot of people felt that just by changing that to going two millimeters superior to ACPC, you could prevent a lot of side effects because you see the focused ultrasound lesions shaped like a football. So it's not a perfect circle. And so it extends in the superior inferior plane. So it could go below ACPC and hit something else, right? And so most practices, most groups across the world just kind of migrated to going two millimeters above ACPC. And they were hoping that that in itself would kind of like limit the side effects. But the largest retrospective study in focused ultrasound really didn't support that. So we don't think that that's the answer completely. Gotcha. Part of the reason I, I wanted to make a side tour on that is because interventional radiology is all about planning, 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 and just complication avoidance uh, above, uh, you know, kind of complication management, uh, but then handling that when, when it does arise. And I think this is very similar in that 
I mean, the treatment is entirely dependent on the pre-procedural imaging and having a very, very precise plan. And so sorry for that little sidebar on that. I just wanted to make sure uh, we did talk about the reality that focus ultrasound can have sort of off-target effects. The thing that it just made me think of was kind of like uh, non-target embolization in radiology. When trying to embolize a target, you, you may get something or same with you know, any of the thermal ablation technologies we use. But back to talking about the day of the procedure. So the patient is on the table and you're delivering the ultrasound beams. And you said that this is going to be about 30, 45 minutes for that, that part of the process. And you're getting kind of the continual feedback with a neuro exam. What is the endpoint for you? Sure. So we, you know, we start first by using the low intensity focused ultrasound and we're just delivering into the target with a thermal dose of around 44 to 45 degrees. So not a permanent lesion, just a purely mechanical, maybe early minimal heating effect. And so we have to do these things called alignment sonications first. And what that means is where you think your transducer is focusing the ultrasound energy is where the ultrasound energy is actually going. And so we, we use very low energy because we want to make sure that things lined up, right? So we do obviously anterior, posterior, superior, inferior, and medial lateral, make sure it's lined up in where you think it is. After you do that, we pause and we all go examine the patient. Reduction in tremor already. They don't have any side effects. And so once we get to that, once we're seeing that, we come back out and we turn the energy up in a blade. And so we'll do two targets. You know, the rationale for that is really from the prior ablation literature in which they describe what they call a snowman lesion, where there's two stacked lesions on top of each other. There's been some discussion recently about what the, whether that's necessary with focused ultrasound, but it seems to be the, the current norm and the, and the trend and the practice. And so we, we kind of stick with that, you know. So we'll do two lesions. We'll, the target temperature dose of 57 degrees Celsius and we'll stop. We also are evaluating the patient for other kinds of tremor symptoms. So a lot of these patients will have voice tremor or head tremor. And so we have successfully treated patients with voice tremor and head tremor, even though they might've required an additional lesion, uh, more medial and more anterior. These are the kinds of things that we're doing. We're constantly monitoring the patient, constantly examining them after every focused ultrasound delivery. And then we're done. I mean, I, I think 30 to 45 minutes is kind of where we're at in terms of treatment times. Beautiful. And so after the procedure, they come out, I guess they're sitting in recovery for a little bit. They're going to be going home the same day or are they, are they staying in the hospital for a little bit? So they're going to be going home the same day. We keep them two hours after the procedure. The first hour, we want them to recover. Obviously, we take the frame off, the water bag off. They're just kind of go back to prep and recovery. But the second hour, we're repeating that initial planning MRI that we had done with the tractography just to see the relationship of where the lesion that we created is compared to those tracts and the other um, structures on uh, fast gray one acquisition T1 recovery sequences and things like that. Uh, then the patient goes home two hours later. I usually give them a call that night to check up and make sure they're doing okay. And then I see them in clinic two days after on Wednesday afternoon, kind of just to see how, how they're doing. Now, 30% of these patients, they're going to complain of like a transient imbalance that starts the night of or the day after the treatment and kind of just goes away on its own three to four weeks after the procedure. And so we've prepared the patients for that and kind of coached them on like making sure they have help or a walker or something else. Nice. And so one question I had is about sort of the timeline for uh, both the improvement as well as any side effects that may show up. Are you pretty much going to see the maximal effect size 
pretty like immediately or within a few days of the procedure? Yeah. So for essential tremor, uh, yeah, you're going to see it immediately. And it's, it's, it's like one of those things, it's like doing a joint injection where you do a joint injection and the patient jumps off the table and it's just like, yeah, ready to go dancing or something. Yeah. I mean, it's the same very thing. Satisfying. Very satisfying. Very satisfying. It's also really emotional for the patients because I mean, as you can imagine, these people have been dealing with their tremor for so long, right? So yeah, it's, it's pretty rewarding. For, I would say for Parkinson's disease and dystonia and other things, the, the time frame for improvement is a little bit longer. And I don't know if that's reflective of, of the target or the circuit that needs to kind of change its behavioral patterns for things to, things to show up clinically. That's really interesting. And then similarly with kind of the side effects, like uh, the kind of gait or any of these kind of like dysesthesias and stuff like that, those are going to be showing up pretty much at that time or within a couple of days. So if you're right on the medial meniscus or if you're right on something that you shouldn't be on, you'll see the side effect right away. But sometimes what we see is that when we get to the higher energies, we create more edema in the brain. Uh -huh. So even though the patient's not having any kind of numbness or tingling the day of the procedure, when they come in on Wednesday, they might say, oh, you know, I'm, I just developed some numbness and tingling in my finger. And it's, it's the edema. And as the edema goes away, they're, they're going to get be It's fine. always the edema. The edema yeah. is always causing problems. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> always in the brain, at least. Um, yeah. Or okay. cord. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is just really incredible to hear about. And it's been so cool to see this program blossom at UT Southwestern to the point that now you're definitely being an example to other places getting this off the ground. I did want to talk about the low intensity focus ultrasound, which you just brought to my attention. And so we, we got HIFU, we got LIFU. I mean, who knows what else, but tell us about the disrupting the blood brain barrier intentionally. Yeah. That, that is, I mean, this is some science fiction stuff and just really exciting to hear about. So yeah, tell, tell us about that. So, I mean, the greatest thing about focused ultrasound is that it's such a dynamic technology, right? So if you're using high intensity and you're, you're destroying tissue, you can turn that intensity all the way down and you can do things like transiently open the blood-brain barrier, but it's even cooler than that because with this mechanical wave stimulation, you can change how neurons are firing. You can actually do neuromodulation with low-intensity focused ultrasound, and that's really being looked at for neuropsychiatric illnesses like depression, addiction, things like that. I think it's a really promising technology. And it also begs the question, like, does it need to be done in an MRI scanner? Or can this be like a wearable thing that the patient can have based on biofeedback, some constant stimulation of parameters and things like that? I mean, I know there's TMS. I know there's other stimulation technologies out there. The great thing about focus ultrasound, though, is it is so precise in terms of the target area, right? The other really great thing about the low-intensity focus ultrasound is something that we've been working on in our lab, and we're doing several studies on campus when, in humans. You can inject these microbubbles, like Definity microbubbles, right? Like, uh -huh. you hear that all the time in cardiac imaging, other kinds of oh, things. Yeah. Love the microbubbles. Love the microbubbles, right? You inject these microbubbles into a peripheral vein, they circulate, and then you expose them to focused ultrasound. And when you expose these uh, microbubbles to low-intensity focused ultrasound, they start to vibrate, they oscillate. And when they oscillate in the brain, let's say you're targeting, say you want to target the hippocampus, so you aim your focus ultrasound transducer at the hippocampus, you start this definity infusion, you, you administer low-intensity focus ultrasound waves to the hippocampus, these microbubbles start to vibrate. And when they vibrate, they transiently open the blood-brain barrier. And then you inject gadolinium, and you can see gadolinium leaking out because it's, it's too large to leak out wow. otherwise. So now you've opened the BBB in a very discrete part of the brain. And so there's so many applications to this, Jacob. I, I think that the, the biggest one is obviously therapeutic delivery, right? Like that is uh -huh. so obvious. 
uh, people who have gliomas or lung cancer metastases or other kinds of metastases of the brain. But there's also other things that are really, really cool. I mean, the idea that you're disrupting the blood-brain barrier in a very targeted fashion also opens you up to things like liquid biopsies, right? Uh So what do I mean by that? Like, so when someone has a glioma right now, all of their treatment is really guided by the mutations that these patients have. And so they have to put a needle in, get some tissue. And we all know about tissue sampling, bias, and things like that. With focused ultrasound, you can expose the whole tumor volume to focus ultrasound, open the blood-brain barrier. It'll close transiently in like six hours, but you'll open it up temporarily and all the circulating tumor DNA will kind of be excreted into the blood. You'll do a peripheral blood test, fill, pull the circulating tumor DNA and find out what mutations that brain tumor has. I mean, obviously the, uh, the applications are endless, but it's just so cool. That is so freaking cool. I mean, you know, obviously in radiology, we, you know, we deal with biopsies every day. And it's kind of a misnomer though, it's just the biopsy. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, certain biopsies can be quite risky, actually. And then talk about the brain, the the one biopsy that uh, radiologists don't really do. And so I know, you know, our, our amazing neurosurgeons, to them, that's that's a pretty minor thing, but it still carries a substantial risk profile. So then if you can do this incisionless and then get a liquid biopsy, I mean, that's that just blows my mind. I think that's really exciting and I can't wait to hear more about it. I'm sure we'll be hearing more uh, in the near future. Yeah, we're doing the clinical trial at UT for delivering uh, therapies to lung cancer metastases and also this liquid biopsy. So uh, Dr. Patel, Toro Patel is the co-PI on that study. And I mean, we're just like really, really enthused to have the opportunity to do this here. You know, I think it's going to change how we think about things. I mean, like, I think what's really cool about it is we're always sitting there looking at MR scans saying, hey, is this radiation necrosis or is this recurrent tumor, right? Right. I mean, yeah. what what an awesome application for, for something like that. I think that's really cool. We're also doing stuff in neurodegenerative diseases and Alzheimer's disease specifically. So, you know, depending on the type of tau isoform that you have in the brain, you can have a different type of neurodegenerative disease. And if you're looking at a patient clinically, it might be really hard to tell which dementia does this patient have. And so... We're doing a trial right now when patients who have Alzheimer's disease, they get an amyloid PET scan and a tau PET scan before the procedure. We use that advanced imaging, pair it up uh, with the procedure to target that part and that patient specifically, right? So it's very precise to that individual. And then we target at the blood-brain barrier opening in those regions, and then they get all their neurocognitive testing assessments done. And then we see on a repeat amyloid PET tau three months down the road, like has the amyloid and tau decreased or not? And I don't think anybody thinks that this focus ultrasound by itself is going gonna, is gonna to cure neurodegenerative diseases, but I think it definitely gives us a way, a theranostic approach, if you will, to diagnose and treat things like in a targeted way. Oh, man, it's, it's just so cool. I'm just going to keep repeating exciting and cool over and over again, but seriously, I mean, my mind is just kind of blown hearing about this and I'm sure you're just kind of scratching the surface in terms of the potential applications. And speaking of that, I did want to talk about one other potential application which is of particular interest to me for HIFU, which is bone metastases, which sounds just amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Is that something you're working with yet? I would expand it from just bone metastases, though, to also talk about painful bone metastases, to be more accurate, and to also to facet disease, neurodegenerative spine disease, you know, things like that. Wow. Uh, The way this works is, as we were talking about with the skull and how bone really likes to absorb ultrasound energy, right? When someone has a painful bony metastasis, destroying the periosteal nerve is a great palliative treatment, right? 
because you are getting rid of the sensory input for it's causing that pain. And so we, there is a there is a clinically available system that can be used to target bone lesions, right? And it heats the bone up and it destroys the periosteal nerve and the patient's pain goes away, right? Now, in terms of like, are we actually able to destroy the tumor and things like that? I think there's some possibility of that, you know. People have kind of looked at that for some benign uh, bone tumors. Yeah. Oh, man, that is that is really exciting. It, you've just really opened my mind to the possibilities of focus ultrasound. And it's clear that this is going to be really big over the next few years. There's going to be a lot of interest in this from a lot of different specialties. So my question to you is, how do you see radiologists best staying at the forefront of this treatment and being uh, not just involved with the, the basic science and the, and the imaging, but actually as, as the treating physicians. How do, you, how do you see that? Well, I think that's really important. You know, I, I think radiology has changed over the years and we've learned some hard lessons. You know, I think number one is patient engagement, right? We have to be willing to engage patients and, and the patients are the most important thing. They're the reason we are doing any of the things that we're doing. That's the reason that any of us took the jobs that we took, right? Right. And so we have to, we have to remember that. And we, we have to work to understanding that whatever we do, we're trying to do it to improve the standard of care for patients. Number two, we have to realize that we are a key component of a multidisciplinary team, right? And I mean, I, in the brain, that is, that is so critical, right? It is important to have people with different perspectives, different experiences, and even though they clash, even when they say, hey, you know, Bavi, I've done tractography, doesn't work, or I've looked at perfusion imaging, it doesn't work. And, really understand why it hasn't worked for them and what they have done or what they haven't done. And I think having that multidisciplinary team is really important because, you know, the O'Donnell Brand Institute, one of its like core principles is to get people out of boxes, right? Like I'm a neurosurgeon, I'm a neuroradiologist, I'm a neurologist. Well, we kind of think that, you know, going forward, the most evolved way of thinking about this is who's doing what it's in the best interest of the patient and letting them, letting them do that. And then I would say that, you know, for radiologists who are interested in this technology, I think it is very imaging heavy. You know, I just gave grand rounds at University of Colorado and, and that was a question that came up. Hey, Bavi, I'm really interested in this. Like, what can we do? How can I, how can I be involved? Well, all of this technology is image-based therapy. And I, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that when you're doing precise lesioning of the brain or other parts, having really advanced, not cursory knowledge, but like really deep knowledge of what advanced imaging can offer you, what its limitations are, what you can do with it is critical. Yeah, absolutely. And especially in your applications, the people you're working very closely with, the other physicians, neurosurgeons and neurologists, are extremely adept at imaging. And especially at UT Southwestern, world-class physicians we're working with. And so you actually, I remember you impressed this upon me when I was a first-year resident is don't settle for sort of fuzzy descriptions of things. And if it's broke as the area where you're seeing a lesion, describe it there because, you know, the neurosurgeon may see, you know, a report with a vague description and they're like, you know, they have the benefit of the patient in front of them and they say, oh, you know, I think this may be actually affecting Broca's area, for example. And so I, I think about that a lot because when we're just looking at it from the diagnostic aspect, we can sometimes be a little bit hamstrung and, and it's easy to describe things. We can easily be way too specific sometimes and it, it's of, you know, debatable utility. But I think it's really important in our training that we have the most in-depth, eloquent 
descriptions of the anatomy and that becomes second nature to us. So I couldn't agree anymore with what you said. I think that clearly this is going to be a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary effort going forward. But I think that's one of the many values that radiology brings to this is, is just having that extremely specific understanding of the anatomy and also how the imaging, especially the tractography, like you talked about, is being used for this. I think that's critical. I think that the training is an important and a critically important part of that. Couldn't agree anymore. Well, Dr. <laughs> Shaw, that's uh, that's all the questions I had. I want to ask any any final thoughts or topics you'd like to discuss, any projects you want people to know about? No, this has been great, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this, too. I think a lot of people are going to be really excited to hear about some of this stuff for the first time. Others probably going to be excited to hear about it in kind of a different avenue than before beyond kind of very neuro-focused meetings. So really, really excited to get people to hear this. And thanks again for your time. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. All right. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. That was that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening.